Are you offering your clients the experience they really want? Or are you offering them what you think they want? Join hosts Laura Gregg and David Partain from FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds as they talk with a variety of industry experts and advisors, just like you, about their latest industry research to help you develop the flexible mindset you need to rise above the crowd. Hello, and welcome to the Flexible Advisor Podcast. I'm Laura Gregg, and I'm joined with my co-host, David Partain. Hello, David. Hello, Laura. On the Flexible Advisor, we seek to invite guests that will provide unique insights and actionable ideas for advisors that want to fine-tune or grow their businesses while deepening client relationships. Today, we're going to talk about building high-functioning advisory teams with Fran Skinner. Fran is co-founder of AUM Partners, a leadership development and talent assessment boutique consulting firm that works exclusively with financial services firms. So those of you who are avid followers of The Flexible Advisor, you may remember Fran from an episode she recorded with us earlier in 2020. So I'm actually kind of an optimistic guy, and I love that when we talked with Fran earlier, she highlighted the benefits that COVID was delivering. Yes, you heard that right, benefits, if we open our minds in terms of new opportunities in recruiting and hiring of talent. Yes, and for anyone who wants to listen to that episode, it's episode number 26, titled, Why Now is the Right Time to Hire?, You know, Fran's insights on building and developing talent can be found throughout the industry and are regularly published on Barron's. Today, we're going to build upon our earlier discussion as we talk about why moving away from old ways of doing things can help you create a more future-forward firm, specifically as it relates to building high-functioning teams. That's awesome, Laura. And if As you know, FlexShares conducted a study in late 2019 on advisor teams and how diversity actually factors in. So talking with Fran, I am actually interested to see if there's overlap in what we learned from the advisors and high net worth investors that were surveyed and what Fran is actually seeing in her individual practice. So David, before we dig in, let me share a little bit more about Fran for those listeners who are not familiar with her. In addition to being founder of AUM Partners and regular columnist for Barron's, Fran is also a corporate board member for Fenimore Asset Management in New York State and on the board of Women Investment Professionals, chairing their strategic planning committee. I met Fran several years ago when I introduced her at a large industry conference and up until February, would bump into her frequently at many other industry conferences. I'm so happy that I've gotten to know her better through the podcast and also because I serve on the committee she leads for women investment professionals in Chicago. Fran, welcome again to the Flexible Advisor podcast. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much, Laura and David. I'm thrilled to be back. Well, Fran, welcome back. As uh, we had such a great conversation before, we decided to have you back. And the last time we spoke, it was about hiring in a pandemic. Phew. And unfortunately, we remain in that pandemic months after we talked. And I guess my first question is this, is it still the right time to be hiring? Absolutely. So what I talked about back in July was about the great talent that's out there 
that has their radar up for other opportunities for a wide variety of reasons. And a lot of these reasons continue to exist. They're perhaps with a big company looking to move to a small company, maybe more entrepreneurial, maybe events over the last eight months uh, have not been to their liking, whether it's because of a manager, owner, the culture of the firm, et cetera, that it's sort of shined a light on that it's time for them to move on. As we've heard, probably many of us heard, people wanting to relocate, to be nearer to family or getting more to a rural or suburban area. The work from home has really highlighted that we're not having to be so concentrated anymore. So we've heard a lot of these motivations. We talked a little bit about them over the summer and they all still exist. But here, this is what's interesting, is that as this has gone on, some, not all, but as this has gone on, some of this great potentially available talent is a little bit hesitant. You know, we still have unknowns going out there. Who would have thought that we'd still be going through this eight months later and probably the number of months to go forward, although we might be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, we still have a few more months to go. So they're sort of hesitating before they take that first step. So hiring managers need to be more proactive to tap what's called these passive lookers. They need to be working their networks, making you know phone calls, hey, how you doing kind of uh, uh, networking and engaging recruiters who are known for successfully surfacing these passive lookers because that's where you can really you know hit some gold. And uh, it also applies to college recruiting. Again, you know, people, we learned this lesson during the financial crisis when people sort of pulled back on the entry level talent. And, you know, that can haunt you for much longer than one year that you skip that, uh, that recruiting. Mm. So it's really important that everyone sort of be very sensitive to A, there's talent out there, B, uh, still continuing to look for new skills that are needed in this new world and closing any skills gaps that are on the team that may be holding you back. You know, Fran, when I reached out to you about joining, joining us again on the Flexible Advisor, I had just read your Barron's article uh, that you titled, Recruiting at Smaller Schools Can Differentiate Your Team. So I graduated many, many years ago from a small liberal arts college, and my graduating class was just over 400 women. So, of course, I'm a proponent and a fan of small schools. And it I'm wasn't hoping... that long ago, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> no, not. It, well, it seems like just yesterday, I'll say that. Uh, but Fran, can you tell us a little bit about that article? What drove you to write it and why advisors might want to think about broadening their recruiting. Oh, sure, absolutely. My motivation was pretty personal in that I went to a very small school in Chicago, St. Xavier University, so that I could continue working part-time, which I needed to do to help pay the bills. And I felt coming out of there that I had received an amazing education. I loved it there, total access to professors. It was amazing. and. I came out hungry because I'm a first generation in this country. My parents were done with their formal education around 15 years of age, and they immigrated here in the late 50s. And so going to this small school and having that you know, more humble background, I felt I had something to prove. So as an employee and now as a consultant, 
Um, for the last 25 years, I've used my own experience and success as an example for managers when I was an employee and my clients over the last 18 years as a consultant to use that as a, an example of the importance of pursuing relationships with smaller schools that have equally hungry and talented students. So here's the thing about that is you know, sort of lacking role models, if you will, it took me a long time to find out what my niche was in terms of my major. And even when I landed on business, that what should I do in business? I actually started out as an elementary education major, because that's all I saw around me for women. And that was nurses and teachers. Luckily, I figured it out in college before I graduated, and I graduated with a business major. But I had no idea, no role models, no one to introduce me to the various options in business. So I had to figure it out for myself. So I started out in auditing, then I moved to accounting, then I moved to finance, then I moved to consulting. So it's been a lot of trial and error, just you know, lacking those role models earlier in my life. So I advocate to all my clients to get into those great small schools make presentations, develop relationships with the career offices, host field trips to your office, and that they should be targeting freshmen. Because as you know, many times, diverse talent opt out of even considering a career in finance, you know, much earlier than junior or senior year. And for some, that may not even be early enough. Research shows that women in Western cultures tend to opt out of finance and other math-based careers much earlier than college. So as you remember from our July conversation, I spoke about pursuing and hiring diverse talent for entry-level jobs, this develop your own philosophy. It's one of the best ways I've seen throughout my entire career about how you can strengthen diversity on your teams. So that's why this small school recruiting is key. And many females in diverse talent follow paths like mine, where you don't have someone to coach you. Um, you don't have a support network to help you get into bigger schools. You don't have a support network to help you stay in the big schools. So you go to these smaller schools and you come out like me. It's like, I'm hungry and I'm going to prove something to you. And then one more thing uh, on this topic is when I talk about diversity to my clients and in, in presentations, I emphasize how important diversity of all types is. And that's gender, culture, race, and diversity of thought. Coming from a more humble or different background gives you, a, gives you the ability to look at things differently. You come from a small school where they may have different philosophies and methods rather than the more common ones you find at the bigger schools. That is another way to really differentiate your team from others. So I, I love all that. And, you know, I, I know that especially in these days when we talk about diversity, so many people's mind immediately goes to racial diversity, which is so incredibly important. But so is diversity of thought. And, you know, along with that diversity of gender and age and sexual orientation and so on. You know, in our advisor team's research that David mentioned that FlexShares conducted, uh, we unfortunately found that other than the largest firms, advisors were not focused really on building diverse teams. And at the same time, the high net worth investors that we surveyed, which was a more diverse universe than the advisors we surveyed, wanted to work with advisors that had shared experiences with them. 
the women in our survey were four times as likely as men to work with a female advisor. And 75% of our Asian investors had Asian advisors and so on. So we, we know that diversity of thought often comes based on our life's experiences, which you talked about earlier. So, you know, what's the first step that you think firms should take, especially smaller firms, in creating a strategy to build that diversity of thought and people in their firms? So the first step is to get an accurate picture of where they're at now, to better understand these you know, unconscious concentrations that they have and which may have resulted in gaps because of these concentrations. So there's a couple of ways that we recommend to clients to do this, and it depends on what their objectives are. So the first is a cultural assessment of the team, of the firm. So I've been doing cultural assessments for 16 years with clients where I have employees respond anonymously online to questions about their living culture at their firm. And the living culture may not necessarily be the espoused culture, the culture that you see, you know, in plaques and things on the walls. The living culture is something that needs to be constantly nurtured. So what I mean by that is I give people a visual, I give my clients a visual. So picture on a slide, there's two pictures. And on the left is a picture of an expert crew team of rowers in perfect sync, gliding quickly over the water because they're all paddling in the same direction, they get it. The other picture is a boat of rowers with paddles going in all kinds of different directions, floundering just to try and move forward a few inches. So when firms are aligned in the same vision, mission, and core values, and they make culture a priority, they're like the expert crew team. Now, this does not mean that they all look the same or that they come from the same background. In fact, great teams are intentionally diverse with a variety of backgrounds. Uh, how they like to be united in things is dedication to client service, high integrity, commitment to excellence in everything that you do. Those are the things that unite them, that make them sort of that expert crew team. But they do not look the same. They do not come from the same background, but they're united in the things that matter that have them all rowing in the same direction. So when I teach hiring for fit to clients for job candidates, these are the things I'm helping them to get clarity about that's important for bringing on job candidates because that's what matters. So the other uh, way, the second step that they can do, depending on what their objectives are, is maybe the cultural assessment isn't the right way to go for them, is individual preference assessment. So um, this way, we it's a much more in-depth thing uh, assessment that we do on each employee on the team to get a better idea about their strengths. And when you collectively roll those things up, any biases or leanings that they may not have realized that they've created on the team. So each team member takes the questionnaire and they're asking things about, or they're measuring things about risk tolerance, how they like to make decisions, optimism when approaching situations, their work environment. So we take all those preferences for the team members and we plot them so that they can visually see where they're clumped together. And the phrase we use is potentially missing a voice in the room at all times. So here's an example I've seen frequently in the 11 years we've been doing the work preference assessments 
is one of the measurements we have is looking at team members' preferences for being optimistic versus looking at what can go wrong, the people who run everything through a skeptic's lens. So many times we found skeptics are comfortable with other skeptics and uncomfortable with people who are highly optimistic. So as a result, they may hire more and more skeptics and shy away from the optimist. Well, when we show them visually that they're a team of skeptics with a missing voice of optimism, that's a fantastic discussion because we start getting at things like what opportunities have been missed because that optimist voice wasn't in the room. It was a room full of people sitting around a table, all of them shooting down a you know, potential opportunity of, because all they could see is what could go wrong, what could go wrong. So we use that to map out the traits that are needed for the next hire, to start filling that gap, to broaden the preferences and the thinking styles and the diversity on the team. So I really love the boat rowing example because one of my favorite books is The Boys in the Boat. And if you haven't read that book, it is fantastic about the depression and the rowing team out of the University of Washington. It's really, it has so many of the examples that you just talked about in business and how you can, how it was applied with the rowing team. It's a really cool book. I would recommend it. I've also been a part of these assessments and they can be really fascinating. And over years, I've actually participated in a variety of these types of exercises. And like I said, found them to be so valuable. Can you go a little deeper into what actually happens after the assessment is done? How do you help your clients take the results of the assessment and then put it into meaningful action? So in addition to what I touched on in the earlier question, there are some other great practical actionable steps. So the first is sometimes it shines a light on the interviewing process, that where it can be improved with just a little bit of training to give everyone who's interviewing a few extra tools to get at what really matters in job candidates, those things that are predictive about whether someone can be successful in a role in your team. So that's one. Another one is taking a look at the job descriptions that they're putting out there and focusing more on people having the preferences or what sometimes I call the DNA to do the job and being willing to train them on the other stuff that can come from education and experience, getting certifications, if you're willing to train and invest in them. So by the DNA, I'm talking about things that come out of the work preference assessment that give you objective data about how the candidates aligns with top performers in similar roles. They love working with numbers. They like to sell. They like collaborating on a team versus working alone. They want to be helpful in a client service role, those types of things. For the culture uh, assessments, the results there can be used to incorporate expected behaviors that align with the values of the firm and using that to put it into performance reviews, maybe even bonuses. If you genuinely measure it, that's when you things get done and behavior changes. So here's an example. One client had an espoused value of collaborative. When we did the culture assessment, collaboration wasn't even in the top 10 of living values at the firm. So we did an offsite and we behavioralized that value along with some of the others, meaning we wrote out a description of what the expectation was of being collaborative on that team. So that was communicated throughout the firm and managers then started being measured on that. 
So the bottom line is with data from sources like the culture assessment, individual work preferences, you get a clear picture of your starting point, where you find yourself today. And then you can use that to map out where you want to get to through training, hiring, succession planning, et cetera. So Fran, um, you know, I would imagine changing culture can be very difficult. Um, what are some of the barriers uh, to firms being able to make that change? And, you know, are they typically self-made barriers uh, by firms choosing actually not to implement your ideas? Or are there other factors that could inhibit them from changing financial issues, workload, or, or other things? Yes, all of the above. So <laughs> first and foremost, management needs to accept the reality of what exists today. So let me give you an example. I did an extensive culture survey of employees a number of years ago, compiled their results, which were both quantitative and qualitative, straight from the employees' responses. I presented it to the senior team. Uh, it wasn't what they were expecting. And when I was done, the CEO said, you're wrong. And I clarified that I was just a conduit gathering the data from the employees and compiling it for management you know, to management's use, but he stood by his belief that the data was wrong, that this living culture that I was painting for him based on what the employees responded was not accurate. So that's an extreme example, but the first step is to accept where you're at, wherever that is. In terms of changing the culture, many times people wanna to tackle too much at one time. I always tell them, if you try to change everything, you'll change nothing. So prioritize what you want to change. Depending on the urgency of the situation, you can plot a course to change one big thing that's really holding you back, or you can choose to do one or two low-hanging fruit things, sort of, you know, get everyone, get some momentum going in terms of, hey, look, we were able to do this. So taking, you know, the easier things first before you tackle some of the bigger things. I encourage people to take a marketing mentality when they want to change one or more things. So again, go back in terms of, you know, what some of the obstacles, some of them are, okay, we have a clear picture, we see, we see where we want to go. And then it's sort of like very directive, you know, sort of pushing it down people's throats. So I always encourage them, look at this as a marketing project. First, you want to answer the why. Why do we need to change? It's so important that everyone understands why ch changes are needed and you need to get buy-in because without that buy-in, the changes won't stick. So there's a lot of marketing and communicating that needs to take place before, during, and after change efforts. The next one is it takes genuine alignment among management at all levels of the organization, you know, commitment to resources, training, measurement, reward uh, systems changing, et cetera. So as you mentioned, Laura, sometimes these changes take time and money. That's when you really see how committed management is to improving the culture. So it's very important that management at all levels throughout the organization are united in this and moving forward with, with some consensus there. And then another barrier is what I call talented terrors. So sometimes improvement means parting ways with toxic people who are not positively contributing towards the direction the company is headed, but they've been there a long time, maybe they're talented, so when employees see talented terrors managed out because they won't accept the positive direction the team wants to go, that's when other employees know this isn't just another flavor of the month. Everyone is serious about improving the culture. So here's a 
real life example from my consulting career. One firm, one client we had was burdened with a lot of gossip that came out of their baseline culture assessment. And it was rampant and it was creating a lot of drama throughout the team. So we did an offsite with the senior team and this was one of the key topics we discussed. So the senior team came out of the offsite committed to eradicating gossip and one of the keys was making everyone responsible for it. So this meant even if you weren't repeating gossip, if you even listened to the gossip, you were part of the problem. So their, their initiative called for zero tolerance of gossip, either listening to it, spreading it, et cetera. If someone started gossiping to you, you were to tell them and you know, have a, go have a forthright conversation with the person you're gossiping about rather than talking behind your back. So in other words, it was about eliminating these receptacles of gossip. So one year later, we were going to repeat the offsite with the senior team. And as we were going through the prep work, I asked, you know, how the gossip eradication was going. And they said it worked beautifully. All but two people bought into eradicating it by taking the steps we discussed. And those two holdouts, they were so committed to the addiction of gossip that they left the team rather than stop. And it was the best thing that could have happened for the team. So one thing I frequently tell people as I'm sharing all these stories and you talk about obstacles is so many times the leaders who reach out to us are people who have good, if not great teams already, that, but they're self-aware enough to know that they can always get better. They can sort of turn that dial. So understanding that as well, you know, people feeling like, well, you know, if we seek out help or we want to make changes, does that make us wrong? Does that make us that we're a bad team? And it absolutely doesn't. That some of the best teams we worked with are people who came to us that were already amazing. And they said, we just want to get even better. So, Fran, I thought with that story, you were going to say they got rid of all the water coolers and all the coffee stations. <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> well, we certainly, you certainly have given us a lot to think about. And we've done a few podcasts on behavioral investing, and I guess I'd call this behavioral strategy. As we always do, what are one or two things that advisors can do today to help push the needle in their firm to improve their team building acumen? Well, the first is exactly what you called it, David, and that is you have to have a strategy as it relates to the living culture. Where are we at? How does it align with what we tell people it is? Where do we want it to be? What steps do we need to take to get there? And how do we maintain it once we sort of arrive there? That doesn't just happen. It really does take true planning and commitment. The second thing is making time for this. So many times everyone's in the trenches, 2020 more so than ever just trying to serve the client, keep service at top levels, despite everything that's happened this year. And sometimes working on the culture, diversity, closing talent, uh, talent gaps, it doesn't get priority. But now more than ever, this is crucial as teams are trying to stay aligned at a distance under stressful circumstances. So now more than ever, advisor team leaders need to make sure that they genuinely communicate how important these things are as we head into 2021. And the way they you know, say that this is important is by committing the time and resources to culture, to strengthening diversity, to training. There'll always be something that's tugging at your attention, right? Always something more important. So this really needs to be a commitment. When there's genuine, genuine commitment, even when things 
are done virtually, they can be wildly successful. Just two weeks ago, I facilitated a strategic planning virtual offsite. 12 people have very demanding day jobs and they committed to the prep work and six hours on Zoom. And it wasn't a six hour, you're sitting there listening to talking heads. It was nonstop interactivity for six hours with breaks for you know breaks and lunches and things, but over a six hour period and it was work. It was, we're developing, we're committing, we're getting to where we need to be. And we accomplished every single agenda item that we had that day. But it took everybody, like nobody staring off at another computer, watching their emails, et cetera. Every single person engaged through every part of it. So that's the difference. And to wrap this all up, as we head into the new year, Committing to action now, as opposed to waiting until we turn to, you know, whatever the normal is going to be, that's really important. I spend a lot of time each week with my clients and others in my network to make sure I'm keeping the fingers on the pulse of what people are thinking and doing. And I don't know anyone who's standing still or hesitating, just sitting here saying, well, you know, when we're back in the office, when things are back to normal, when I can travel again, absolutely not. And so that's something else, the last thing that I'll leave you with is, you know, particularly right now, as people are getting fatigued, maybe we're, you know, a little optimistic in terms of when life returns to normal now that we've been getting some good news on a vaccine and things like that. But we can't, we, everyone just has to keep moving forward and not be waiting for sort of this return to normal. Well, that's great advice. The normal just, uh, seems like it may come any day, but then every day goes by. We just, oh, we just don't know what to expect. And so mm-hmm. I, I know for me personally, and from speaking with my team, that that is a, that's a constant battle. So really appreciate the insights you gave us today and for such a delightful conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being back. And, and, uh, and I hope everyone gets a little nugget out of there that they can use. I'm sure they did. Well, if you would like to know more about AUM Partners, just go to www.aumpartnersllc.com. Or you can look up Fran on LinkedIn under Capital AUM Partners. For myself and Laura Gregg, we want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us on today's episode of The Flexible Advisor. Thank you for listening to the Flexible Advisor podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of FlexShares Exchange Traded Funds or Northern Trust. All investments involve risk, including possible loss of principal. Before investing, carefully consider the FlexShares investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus and a summary prospectus, copies of which may be obtained by visiting www.flexshares.com. Read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Foresight Fund Services, LLC Distributor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Although we attempt to keep the information complete and current, we do not warrant that the content herein is accurate, complete, or current. 
We make no commitment to update the content herein. It is your responsibility to verify any information before relying on it. The content of this podcast may include technical inaccuracies. We may make changes in the products and or services described herein at any time. We provide you this information with the understanding that we are not rendering accounting, legal, or tax advice. Please consult your legal or tax advisor concerning such matters.